All right. First Corinthians chapter seven. We are going to jump in. It's good to be gathered uh, together, whether, uh, together, whether you're here at Tyson's or watching from one of our other locations, watching from home, uh, hotel room, if you're traveling for work, whatever the case may be, it is good to be gathered together. We're going to be in First Corinthians chapter seven. And uh, this is kind of our weekly PSA, like our, our heads up for parents that we're in a series called Beauty and Brokenness. Uh, it's a series about uh, sexuality, singleness, and dating. And uh, so if you're just jumping in here uh, with us, maybe you're watching and you got your kids with you, you're here, you have your kids. Uh, we are um, addressing some uh, topics that can be sensitive and uh, kind of talking about some concepts that can be a sen- uh, sensitive around those, uh, around those topics. But we have decided we're going to keep it on the PG side of the spectrum. And uh, today we're talking about singleness. So shouldn't be too bad, but I do want to just give you a moment if for whatever reason it's not something you're comfortable with uh, uh, having your child there, feel free to just kind of pause and come back to it later. If you're here, you can put your little old school Baptist finger up and just uh, slip out if you want to, but things will be, uh, will be pretty, pretty clean. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where we are going to be. And to everybody who is single, uh, God has a word for you today. Don't have sex. Let's close in prayer. Like, that would be an extraordinarily frustrating sermon. And yet, and yet, it's a pretty solid summary of what so many churches have taught about singleness. I mean, think about it. Is that all God has to say to single people? There has to be more. In fact, there needs to be more because our culture is increasingly single. So for the first time since the Bureau of Labor Statistics began tracking these numbers, the first time, listen, in the history of our country, the number of single people outnumber married people in the U.S. More than 50%, more than half of American adults are single. In 1950, that number was around 22%. That's, that's from 2012, so it's probably even higher now. Eric uh, Klinenberg, a, a sociologist who, who studied this in his book, Going Solo, said that these numbers represent, listen, the biggest demographic shift since the baby boom right after World War II. A 2014 Pew report uh, estimates that by the time, listen, that by the time today's young adults reach the age of 50, about one in four of them will have never married. One in four. One writer called 2021 the age of the single. It was better than the age of the pandemic. Hopefully we're, we're coming out of that. And when we think about single people, we tend to to just think about one particular demographic, but there are unmarried people across a variety of situations. So young singles, that's typically who we think about when we think about the single life, whatever, whatever that means. There's teenagers who feel constant pressure to date, singles who are, quote unquote, getting older, which is actually true about everybody, but but I get it. Singles who want to get married, singles who never want to get married, singles who are too busy to even uh, to really give it uh, that much thought until a concerned family members uh, just interrupt Thanksgiving dinner with those. So when are we going to settle down uh, conversations? Why do they always say we? So when are we going to settle down? We can leave right now. Like we can take a plate and leave 
my house. I know that's how uh, many of us uh, feel. Uh, there's, there's people who are single because of divorce. Um, we talked about that last week, men and women who are widowed, single parents. And as we've talked about earlier in this series, there's people who wrestle with gender and sexuality and that kind of has them uh, in unwanted, in many cases, singleness. And before we dive in, we've pulled together a host of different resources related to sexuality, singleness, and marriage. You can uh, get all those resources for free at our website, mcclainbible.org slash sexuality. We hope those resources will be helpful for you. But I want you to just think about this for just a second. If you're single, there's three ways to see the single life. You can see singleness as convenience. This is how singleness is often viewed in more individualistic cultures or more secular parts of the country, like like where we live here in the D.C. metro area. You can see singleness as a curse. This is how singleness is often viewed in more traditional cultures or more religious parts of the country like the Bible Belt. And I want to challenge you to view singleness in a different way, in a biblical way. According to Scripture, God invites us to see singleness not as convenience or a curse, but as a calling. Now, just hold, hold on for a second, because I know as soon as I say that, some of y'all are like, mm, that calling can go to voicemail. I don't even check voicemail. I'm not, I'm not picking up this call from God. Andreas Kostenberger said, the only call of God that Western Christians fear more than the call to missions is the call to a life of celibacy. Because when we think about singleness, that's what we think about. We think about what we're missing out on or what we think we're missing out on. And so I know what some of y'all are thinking. You're thinking, I appreciate this, Mike. I'm not called to, to be single. So let me help you discern whether singleness is a calling for you or not. It really boils down to one uh, question. Are you single? If your answer is yes, then singleness is a calling for you. Now, before you walk out or log off, let me just be a little bit more clear. I'm not talking about calling as this permanent, undeniable, irreversible, divine fate, okay? I, when, when I say calling, and we'll see this in this text in 1 Corinthians 7, when I say calling, I'm talking about an invitation from God to live out the purposes that he has for you in this season of your life, however long that season is, that he has purpose right where you are. And so I'm not asking you, and I don't think God is necessarily asking you to give up your desire for marriage. I'm asking you to say this at the end of this sermon, if you're single, if you're watching this, I'm asking you to say with open hands and an open heart, God, use my singleness however you want. Whether it's for a season or it's for a lifetime, God, I am surrendering my singleness to you. Use my singleness, God, however you want. Because listen, here is the reality. Listen, and I want to encourage you if you're single, but I also want to lovingly challenge you. Listen, singles, God wants all of your life, not just your sex life. He wants all of your life, not just your sex life. And so if you're kind of living the typical Christian single life, which is basically just avoiding premarital sex, then you are living beneath the call of God on your life for this season. You are missing out on experiencing the fullness of what God has for you. 
And I want to challenge you and hopefully in an encouraging way because I think Paul points out three things that can hold you back from living out the calling God has for you in your singleness. And married people, I know you might be tempted to zone out, but I want to encourage you. I heard somebody laugh. I want to encourage you to lean in. And I don't want to just encourage you to lean into this so that you can like send the passive aggressive email to your single friend. Just I heard a, a sermon on, on singleness and I thought of you. Please don't say that on behalf of single people worldwide. Please don't send that email. I'm inviting you. I'm encouraging you to lean into this sermon because, listen, the fact of the matter is marriage problems are typically just single problems that got smuggled in. And so as we hear from God in this text, I think you'll hear some things where God wants to work in you and in your marriage as well, not just single folks. But Paul points out three things that can hold you back from living out the calling God has for you in your singleness. Here's number one, discontentment. Discontentment. Let's work our way from verse 17 to 28. And uh, chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, let me give you... Uh, kind of the point Paul is making up front, so you have it in your mind in and, and, and this context. So Paul is responding to an earlier letter that the Corinthians had sent him, and they're, they're asking for clarification on a bunch of different issues, including marriage. And so we saw this, this chapter opens in verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and here's one of those matters that they were asking about. It was this, this idea that, that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, Paul is going to kind of nuance that and bring some clarification to that because there was a, a misconception floating around the Corinthian church in the first century that sex is bad and singleness is more spiritual than marriage. Opposite problem in the church that we have today. But they, they were believing this false teaching that sex is bad and singleness is more spiritual than marriage. And so you have married people wrestling with whether or not they were still allowed to enjoy sexual intimacy with their spouse. So that's going on in chapter 7. And then you had unmarried people wrestling with whether or not they were allowed to get married, some of whom, as we'll see, were already engaged. That's an awkward Bible study. They're wondering now whether or not to call off the wedding. And Paul responds, verse 17, chapter 7, he says, Only, he says, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has, and if you got your own copy of the Bible, under, underline this, to which God has called him or her. You'll see the same idea repeated eight times in just these first seven verses. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he or she was called. Verse 24, so brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And so on one level, Paul is talking about the call into relationship with God, the call to salvation. And you see that in chapter 1, verse 9. But listen, this is a call. This, this call of God, it doesn't just change your heart. It begins to change how you live and what you live for. So Paul isn't saying that it's wrong to desire something different for your life or, or, or to want to change your situation. We'll see that very clearly down in verse 21. 
Paul is saying you don't have to wait for your social status to change in order to fully maximize the spiritual status you've been given in Christ. And when he says, this is my rule in all the churches, I think he's saying to these Corinthian Christians, he's saying, you're not the only one struggling to find contentment and purpose in the midst of your circumstances. There are all these people pressuring you to kind of change your situation. And so Paul brings up these two issues that Christians in other regions were dealing with in order to illustrate his point. Circumcision in verse 18 to 20 and slavery in verses 21 to 24. Because see, as people were becoming Christians throughout the Roman Empire, they were wrestling with the question, is my social status keeping me from fully enjoying the purposes and promises of God? Is my social status a barrier? And so you had Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are just non-Jewish people who were becoming Christians. And for Jewish people, circumcision was a big deal. It was, it was the external sign that you belonged to God's covenant family. And so there were Gentile Christians who were being influenced by false teaching, and they worried that they had to become Jewish in order to be fully included in the Christian community. And then on the flip side, there were Christians from a Jewish background who had been radically transformed by the gospel. They had finally come to understand that they couldn't earn God's acceptance by trying to keep the Old Testament laws, that they could only be accepted by God through faith in Jesus the Messiah. And so now they worried that they needed to completely abandon their Jewishness in light of their identity in Christ. And so Paul says, verse 18, He says, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for for anything nor uncircumcision when it comes to being acceptable to God. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters in terms of your identity in Christ and living out that identity. In verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he or she was called. Now, you also had slaves wrestling with what the gospel meant for them. And historians estimate that anywhere between 25 to 40 percent of the people in Roman colonies would have been slaves of some sort. So this was a major issue for Christians, for a lot of Christians in the first century. And just as a sidebar, if if slavery in the Bible is is a difficult thing for you to to understand, to wrap your mind around, if it causes you to, to struggle to really trust the scriptures, then we covered that. We did a whole sermon on that topic in detail a few months ago when we studied the book of 1 Peter. So if you have questions about that, you can look up that sermon on our website. It's called, Is the Gospel Good News for Slaves? And if you want an easy way to find it, you can go to mcclainbible.org race. And it's listed on there with a bunch of other resources on that topic. But this issue, slavery, was a major issue for a lot of Christians in Paul's day. And Paul says to them, verse 21, he says, were you a bondservant when called? He says, don't be concerned about it. Pause, Paul. Just time out. Run it back, Paul. You said, uh, were you a bondservant? Don't be concerned about it. Again, listen listen to that sermon. But let me just tell you, when he says that, he doesn't mean slavery is your lot in life. Just embrace it and get over it. 
That's why he immediately adds a clarification. He says, if you continue in verse 21, he says, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. In other words, he's saying, I'm not telling you to not pursue your freedom. He says, I'm telling you in the meantime that there's a soul-satisfying freedom that even your slave master cannot take from you. Verse 22, for he who has called in the Lord, he who was called in the Lord, in the gospel as a bondservant is now a freedman in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Equal status. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. And then the same hook. That he's been coming back to throughout this whole section. Verse 24. So brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, let him or her remain with God. So follow what Paul is saying here. He's saying your social status is not an accurate measure of your spiritual status. He's saying your social status is not an accurate measure of your status in the kingdom of God. And so he's saying to these Corinthian believers, he's saying, do you see how that's true when it comes to circumcision? Yes, Paul. Okay, do you see how that's true when it comes to slavery? That's a tough one, but I'll take your word for it, Paul. And so Paul says, okay, so then now I want you to apply that to your marital status. Verse 25, he says, now concerning the betrothed, just an, an, basically means engaged, those who are engaged. Now, he's, he's talking about engaged couples, he said, who are wrestling with, in light of this false teaching and this pressure, do we have to break off the, the engagement? Do we have to cancel the wedding? He says, I have no command from the Lord. He says, but I give my judgment, my pastoral recommendation as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. He's saying, I don't have a direct quote from Jesus on this specific situation, but I want to give you some wisdom. And this is wisdom inspired by the Holy Spirit and preserved for us in the Bible. And here's Paul's recommendation for them. Verse 26, he says, I think that in view of the present distress, and we don't know for sure, but the present distress is probably referring to just the general challenges that were facing Christians at that time. Uh, challenges like persecution in the Roman Empire and other challenges. He's saying, considering the challenges that, that you're facing right now in this context, he says, it is good for a person to remain as he is. What he's talking about is ultimately he's going to get to is single. But he says, listen, are, are you bound to a wife? He says, don't seek to be free. But are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. And you might immediately think, oh, well, so wait, is, is it a bad thing to want to be married? And, and Paul says over and over again, no, that's not a bad desire at all. In fact, that's partly why Paul is writing this, because there are people in Corinth, like I said, who are saying that it's sinful or less spiritual to desire marriage. And that's why he adds verse 28. He says, but if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And if a betrothed woman, if a, a woman who's engaged gets married, she has not sinned. And he emphasizes the same thing down in verses 36 to, to 38. He basically says there, marriage is good, but singleness has some significant advantages. 
that I want you to keep in mind. And we'll see that in a second. But I don't want you to miss Paul's overall point. Here's his point. The ultimate issue for Paul isn't whether you're married or single. The ultimate issue for Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 is whether you're fully surrendered to God in your marriage or in your singleness. And listen, I think for some of us, as we think about discontentment, for some of us in our singleness, some of us have surrendered our sex lives to God, or at least are trying our best to, but we haven't, so many of us haven't yet fully surrendered our heart to God. We haven't fully surrendered our heart to the goodness and the sovereignty of God in this season of our lives for however long it lasts. We haven't surrendered our hearts and that discontentment and frustration can cause you, can cause you to feel abandoned by God in your singleness or alienated from other people in your singleness. Matthew Vines is a, a popular writer who rejects the biblical view of sexuality and he, he, he wrote this. He said, listen, he said, to deny a small minority of people, he's talking about people on the LGBTQ kind of spectrum. He says, to deny a small minority of people, not just a wedding day, but a lifetime of love and commitment and family is to inflict on them a devastating level of hurt and anguish. He goes on to say, when we reject the desire of gay Christians to express their sexuality within a lifelong covenant, we, listen, he says, we separate them from our covenantal God and we tarnish their ability to bear his image. Wow. Like in his view, unwanted singleness tarnishes your ability to bear the image of God. Like, I obviously don't agree with that, but I hear the pain behind it. Like, is that the fate of single Christians? Well, not from a biblical perspective. David preached about this two weeks ago in his sermon, Beauty in Both Singleness and Marriage. He said both singleness and marriage are good gifts. Both singleness and marriage display the gospel. Both singleness and marriage bring God's glory. So listen to me. Marriage is not a graduation. You're, you're not the college student who's just, who's kind of like me, who's just year four, just kind of rolled on by and you're still there like that. Marriage is not graduation. It's not an upgrade. It's not a measure of your maturity. You have not been left behind if you are single. As Paul says earlier in chapter seven, yes, marriage is a gift from God, but so is singleness. And God has a calling for you he has a calling for you to fulfill in your singleness, whether you're younger or old, older, whether you're a, a single for a season or for a lifetime. And you got to give that discontentment to God and allow God to pour into your heart and your life a sense of purpose and meaning and joy, even in the midst of your singleness. Now, on that note, I got to say this to the broader church family on behalf of my single friends. We can't say single people have equal status in the kingdom and yet perpetuate a culture in the church where they feel second class. Because that's how a lot of people feel, a lot of single people feel in church. 
And we can do it inadvertently. We can do it in our preaching. We can do it in our gatherings, in the way that we talk. Because, like, for real, I'm just, I got the mic, so I'm trying to just give my single people some shine here for a second. Like, like a lot of them are like, y'all look, y'all kind of treat singleness like it's a pandemic. And so you, you treat marriage like it's the vaccine. Like you, like you treat marriage, like when you get around us single people, you're like, oh my, oh, we need to sign you up. We need to, how can we get this person vaccinated from singleness? And so the broader church family, we have to be transformed by the renewing of our minds to not just think about singleness from a cultural perspective or our personal perspective, but from a biblical and theological perspective that God holds singleness up as equal status to marriage, as equal citizenship in the kingdom of God, as equal partners and co-laborers in the work of the gospel. And so listen, we got to stop treating single people with suspicion. What I mean by that is oftentimes when we meet an adult single, especially who's over the age of 30, we assume something must be wrong. And we say things where we mean well, like she's so pretty or he's so smart. And you're like, man, why haven't you gotten married yet? As if they're just like sitting around, just like we say things like that and it communicates this unbiblical, distorted view of singleness. Friendships with people, this is true of all of us, with people of different ages and stages of life because married people tend to gravitate toward friendships with other couples and parents tend to gravitate toward friendships with other parents and single people tend to gravitate toward friendships with other singles. It's just kind of what we do, and there's, there's room. It's beauty in those peer life stage relationships. We, we need those. They add to our lives, but it can't only be that. Because in Christ, speaking specifically about Christians, we are family together. We don't just quarantine one group of people over here while everybody over here is just kind of living in the fullness of God. No, that's not how it works. Like we are equal brothers and sisters and citizens in the kingdom of God, and we need to not just give lip service to it, but live like it. And so married people, right, we, we, we can't just, just kind of just focus in on the, on the nuclear family and just kind of forget about everybody else. And single people, y'all can't just be out in these streets just going to brunch or whatever and not inviting me. I'm trying to have some brunch too. One single writer, a Christian single writer, says, although Christian discipleship is costly, it need not be lonely. He says, our culture has become fixated on sex, but sex and romance are not the same as love. And he goes on to talk about how God has designed church family and friendship in order to satisfy our God-given desire for love. And I'm not saying it's the same. I'm not saying that will satisfy your longing for the kind of covenant marital love that you desire. What I am saying is that you don't need to, like Matthew Vine says, live a life condemned to a lack of love. And we as a church family can create an environment where that is actually true. Discontentment will hold you back from living out the calling God has for you in your singleness. Here's the second thing. We got to move faster. Worldliness. Worldliness will hold you back from living out the calling God has for you in your singleness. Now that word worldliness, it brings up all kinds of ideas, right, based on your background. 
It's a very churchy word. So if you're new to church, that may not make a whole bunch of sense. Dictionary.com defines it as, this was funny, the quality of being experienced and sophisticated. That's not what I mean by worldliness. For people with a fundamentalist background, the term worldliness has to do with anything that's not explicitly Christian. So there's a firm line between the sacred and secular, and the two should never meet. So no secular movies or music or fashion, just long skirts, ancient hymns, and left-behind movies. That's all we got in fundamentalism. For most Christians, though, worldliness just means sinfulness. And that's definitely a part of worldliness. But listen, you can live a moral life and still be a worldly Christian. You say, how? What do you mean? Because broadly speaking, worldliness is a philosophy of life. It's a philosophy of life that says the things of this world are the most important things in life. It's YOLO. It's get the bag. It's carpe diem. It is the things of this world are the most important things. The things of now are the most significant things for me to pursue. It's living as if this world is all there is. And so in that sense, worldliness is not just sinfulness. Worldliness is also short-sightedness. And that's Paul's concern here in verses 29 to 30. Or if you look back in verse 28, he says, Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, which he'll explain down in verse 32. And he says, And I would spare you that. He says, This is what I mean, brothers. He says, The appointed time has grown very short. And then you see at the end of verse 30 where he says, For the present form of this world is passing away. And when Paul says the appointed time is short, he's talking about the time in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. He's saying, listen, y'all, here's some good news right here. He's saying that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has kick-started the next phase of the kingdom of God. That in the atoning work of Jesus, in the sending of his Holy Spirit, something dramatic has happened. Like on the stage of world history, something dramatic has happened. God has now set in motion his plan to make all things new, not just in our hearts, but one day in our bodies and in all of creation. This is what Paul means in the book of Ephesians when he talks about God's purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, not just my spiritual life, All things, things in heaven and things on earth. God has set his plan in motion to remove sin and suffering from his creation so that we can finally enjoy his presence without interruption or corruption. And so we listen as followers of Jesus. We look forward to the day. We look forward to the day when Jesus comes back to completely finish that work. When we realize with no doubt, when we realize with no distortion that all of God's promises come true, that he truly is the one who has and will satisfy our souls. And listen, this is why it's so important for you to believe the gospel and trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord, as your Savior and your King. Because the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is the risen, resurrected Lord. He is reigning and he is coming back again. He's coming back again to make all wrong things right. He is coming back again to fulfill everything that we desire for good in this world that constantly disappoints us. He will satisfy it and fulfill it and complete it in ways that we could not possibly imagine. Jesus is coming back, but he's also coming back as a judge. 
He's coming back as your judge. Because you and I, we have sinned against the holiness of God and we deserve his punishment and his judgment and it separates us from God. And God is a man of his word. He will fulfill his promises. When he comes to judge, there will be no excuses. He's not grading on a curve. Your good works are not gonna outdo your bad works. You will stand before him in the nakedness of your sin and you will receive God's judgment and condemnation. This is what God promises to do. But the good news, is that he doesn't want you to face his judgment. He wants you to face him with joy. And the only way that happens is not because of anything you do, but what he has done in sending Jesus to die in your place on the cross for your sins. And Jesus rose from the grave to secure eternal life for every single person who would trust in him. So it doesn't matter what you've done or what your status is or what you wrestle with. You do the same thing I had to do. You humble yourself before God. You believe his diagnosis of your sinful condition and you turn to him as the only cure for that sinful condition. That Jesus is the only one who by his sacrifice can forgive you of your sins. He's the only way you can go to heaven. He's the only way you can enjoy eternal life and have a relationship with him. And I want to invite you today today to turn from sin and trust in Jesus. And when you do, when you're born again through faith in Jesus, then it begins to change everything. All of a sudden, your hopes and dreams and joys are no longer confined to the limitations of this passing world. And it changes how you see all the things of this world. It changes the way you see relationships. That's why Paul says in verse 29, he says, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. It changes the way you see your circumstances. Verse 30, he says, and from now on, let those who mourn as though, as though they were not mourning and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. It changes the way you see your career and your possessions. He says, let those who buy as though they had no goods and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Listen, Paul is not saying those things are irrelevant. He's not saying if you're married, like, don't act like you're not married. What he's saying here is, what, this is what my theology professor put it, and I, I think this is so good. He says, what concerns Paul is if the, listen, if the things of this world cause one to forget the world to come. For every, listen to what he says. He says, for every present reality is a shadow compared with the substance to come. Now, kids, uh, have y'all, if you're watching, like, like I, I know, I already know your answer to this question. Have you, you ever been to, to those grocery stores that give out samples? The, the sad thing is a lot of y'all adults just got giddy like when I, when I said that. And I, I love it too. I absolutely love, I, they're not really doing it in the pandemic, but I love Costco. Not for the savings, but for the samples. I absolutely love them. But I don't love them this much. I saw this picture of, of this lady. She posted this, this picture on, on Instagram of, of her, the samples that she collected at, at Costco. And kids, you can get up close to the screen to see if you can kind of make out all the different treats and snacks that are, that, are, that are in there. But this lady had piled up all these samples on her plate, and, and her caption is hilarious. You can't see, really see the caption there, but the caption was, when you're poor, you make meals out of Costco samples. 
And I think what Paul is saying in verses 29 to 30 is Christians don't live like you're poor. She says, when you're poor, you make meals out of Costco samples. And I think when you, when you have a worldly perspective, then you live as if this is all you can ever get to enjoy. You'll constantly be craving and clamoring to get more of what this world says important because worldliness is living like your life in this world is the only life you get to enjoy. And if that's your perspective, then this is what your life will end up looking like. Like this frantic collection of things that were never designed to ultimately satisfy you. Samples were never designed to ultimately satisfy you. You just live your life cycling through and collecting just broken relationship after broken relationship. Just trying to accumulate or chase these accolades that actually still leave you empty when you lay your head on your pillow at night. Why? Because worldliness always leads to emptiness. Listen to me. If you are in Christ, you are not poor. You are not deprived. You are not incomplete. Yes, the good things of this world are really good. But the good things of this temporal world are merely advertisements of the eternal goodness of God. They are samples of the goodness of God that he wants you to enjoy now and for all of eternity. And the difference is that God is not trying to get you to buy something. He's inviting you to enjoy what he's already purchased for you. When you really grasp the fact that this world is temporary, but God's kingdom is eternal, it changes your singleness. It frees you up to enjoy God's good gifts without turning them into idols. And it frees you up to see that there are things that God is inviting you to focus on that are honestly more important, more eternally significant than whether you're married or single and what your mom thinks about it. Yeah, moms. Which sets us up for this last point. As we prepare to close, what will hold you back from living out the calling God has for you and your singleness, discontentment, worldliness, and number three, self-centeredness. Self-centeredness. We get this picture in the church of single ladies just moping around, waiting for a man to complete them. The fact of the matter is there's a lot of women and men who are enjoying their singleness. In fact, that's what Eric Klinenberg's research is, is all about. Like it, it, it's about, he's a sociologist, his research is about the fact that most singles actually like being single. He quotes from one of the people he interviewed. Now, this isn't true of, of everybody. This isn't saying singleness isn't difficult, that there's not seasons of discontentment, but he's saying on the whole, when you study the research, increasingly so, singleness are really out in these streets just living life. You know what I mean? And so this is what one person said in his research. They said, living alone helps us pursue sacred modern values, individual freedom, personal control, and self-realization, whose significance endures from adolescence to our final days. It allows us to do what we want, when we want, on our own terms. It says it liberates us from the constraints of a domestic partner's needs and demands and permits us to focus on ourselves. 
Man, is that your view of singleness? That it permits you to focus on yourself. Like when you think about singleness, all you think about is the, the degrees that you can get and the vacations that you can go on and, 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 and how late you can sleep on the weekends whenever you want. Or, and I know you probably got to walk the dog and all that type of stuff. I know singles have responsibilities too. I know, sing, especially in the D.C. area, singles are busy working 60-hour jobs and all of that. This is not a caricature of singleness. But there is this worldview that says, I want to stay single so that I can focus on myself. And here's the thing. When we start following Jesus, singleness is not merely an opportunity to focus on ourselves because we surrender our singleness to the lordship of Jesus. So don't allow the single life to become a selfish life. And that's why Paul says, verse 32, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. And he's not talking about clinical anxiety. He's talking about the day-to-day stress that comes from family responsibilities. And watch where he goes with this. He says, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How, listen, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed or engaged woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. Look at this, how to be holy in body and spirit. That's in her behavior and her heart. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. He says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure, listen, your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, listen, those are primary, the primary goals for every Christian. Pleasing God, growing in holiness, being devoted to God with a, with a whole, complete, undivided heart. Those are the goals for every Christian, married or single. So don't misread this. Paul isn't giving married people and parents an excuse to just coast in their spiritual life while they focus on their family. In fact, listen, the greatest way, parents, for you or, or, or married people, for you to love your spouse and raise your kids is to model what it looks like to, be, to wholeheartedly follow Jesus. You got to ask yourself, what are my kids learning about the Christian life from watching the way I live? Because your kids will learn more about following Jesus from watching your life than from watching my sermon. So yes, married people should also be growing in holiness and active in ministry. But Paul is just acknowledging the reality that when you're married, and especially if you have kids, You're limited in how much time and energy and money you can devote to ministry outside of your family. And in that sense, Paul is saying singleness is an incredible opportunity to invest in things that require more flexibility. And listen, listen, the good news is that research shows that broadly speaking, single people aren't necessarily just closed off living just self absorbed lives. Single people volunteer more for social service organizations, educational groups, hospitals and organizations devoted to the arts than people who are married. But Paul is not just writing to singles. He's writing to Christian singles. And so, yes, all those things matter. Volunteering, educational groups, all that stuff matters. Give yourself to serving people in that way. But as a Christian 
who has been called into a relationship with God, you are also now invited to join God in living out his purposes in the world, in and through the local church for the spread of the gospel among all nations. And if we don't do it as Christians, who will? So that has to factor in God's calling for your life in this season of your singleness. So listen to me, Christians, you have an opportunity you have an opportunity to change the way people experience the church. Like you, you have an opportunity to change the way people experience the church because as the research shows, single people broaden the traditional family and they include like in their lives people from all different kinds of backgrounds and life stages. While married people tend to just focus on their nuclear family, you know what that means? It means singles. You have an opportunity in the local church to change the culture so that this feels like family for people of all different kinds of life stages and ages and stations in life. You can help lead us in that. Don't just lead in every other sector of society and leave leadership in the church to married people. We need you to lead us in becoming the kind of family that God designed us and desires us to be. And single people, Christian singles, you have an opportunity to advance the gospel. Listen, in hard to reach places. Because for married people, every single decision we make, we have to consider our spouse or our kids. In every single decision that we make, but you have flexibility to say, God, I'm surrendering my singleness to you. It's not that we don't surrender our marriage, but you have this unique flexibility by God's design in order to live out his calling in this season of your life. And I want to challenge you if you are a Christian and you are unmarried. I don't care how young or old you are. I want to challenge you to see this as an opportunity for you to leverage that for the spread of the gospel. And so one practical thing I want to encourage you to do as we prepare to close, I want you, and this is true for all of us, everybody in our church, everybody watching, but specifically want to challenge those of you who are single. Man, I, I, I want you to lock in to Secret Church in April. Secret Church is a gathering that, that Pastor David Platt is going to be teaching. It's like five or six hours long, and I've been to all of them, and it's amazing. And what he's teaching about is the great imbalance and talking about the fact that so much of the resources of the church that go toward missions goes towards areas that have already been reached, that are already flooded with resources. When the overwhelming majority of places that are unreached, that have urgent physical needs, famine and, and all kinds of disease and all kinds of extreme poverty and urgent spiritual need where people have no access to the gospel whatsoever, those areas are neglected. And I want to encourage you to lock in the secret church, to just listen and to, and to allow God to cast a vision for your life about how you might go or support God's work around the world. And what I want to invite you to do, I want to invite you with open hands and open hearts to say, God, I surrender my singleness to you. I don't care if you're 17 years old or you're 72 years old. To say, God, I surrender my singleness to you. 
Like, I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. And I don't follow you, Lord Jesus, begrudgingly because you are a good father. You are a good shepherd. I know that you lead me in passive life. I know that in your presence is fullness of joy. I know that you came so that I would have abundant life. I want to encourage you to say, God, I surrender my singleness to you. In the context of the local church and for the spread of the gospel. Listen, let me just say before I pray for us, one of the beauties of being in our church is that we get to be a family that includes brothers and sisters with special needs. And so I want to say to the family that's in the back, you don't have to feel alienated or embarrassed at all. We are a family for all kinds of people. Amen. Amen. So we rejoice at the privilege of being that kind of family for all kind of people in whatever age or life stage or ability or whatever. And singles, I want to invite you to help lead in that. Let me pray for us. I want to pray for us. And as I pray, I want to give you an opportunity, if you have never done it, to put your trust in Jesus, to surrender not just your singleness, but your whole life to him. And as I pray, if you are a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you, maybe even literally with open hands, to say to God, I'm surrendering my singleness to you, God. I'm releasing my plans for my life because I want your plans for my life. And if you're married, I want you to do the same thing. God, we open our hands and our hearts to you. We surrender ourselves to your good will, God, your wise sovereignty. That every single one of us, parents of special needs, kids and people who are married and in difficult times and singles who are trying to kind of figure out your will and plan, Lord, in all of these different ways, Lord God, we, we surrender ourselves to you even when it's difficult and even when it hurts. God, I pray you would help us by your grace and by your power to live out the calling, the various callings that you have for us in this particular season or situation, God. And for those who now, Lord, sense in their heart, God, that you're calling and drawing them maybe for the first time, Father, I pray, Lord God, that you would save them, that as they cry out to you, Lord God, that as they confess their sin to you, Lord, that as they confess their trust in Jesus his death and resurrection is the only way to be saved and forgiven of their sin. Lord, I pray that you would save them, that you would change them, God. And God, that you would invite them to step into the calling that you have for their life. God, our lives are yours. They're yours. And we're so glad about that. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.